The reason the Son of God appeared was to, dis- to destroy the devil's work. If you're new to NLCC, you've joined us in a sermon series called Deliver Us, Life in the Victory of Jesus. And we're learning how Jesus, and this is a spoiler alert, has already achieved the victory over our greatest enemy, the devil, or as he's also known, the Satan. The devil or the Satan has many titles in scripture, slanderer, accuser, murderer, liar, thief, a blinder of eyes, rebellious ruler, inciter of disobedience, destroyer. Why on earth would we ever be enticed by such a rascal? Well, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He doesn't show up with a big crown like Sauron, you know? He's a con artist. He's a deceiver. This week, one of the questions that Israel faces in this sudden conflict with Hamas has been the apparent failure of their intelligence agencies to anticipate this coordinated and destructive attack. And now we see evil just unfolding in so many ways because of the enemy's ways in that region. And it's a horrible thing, and we'll pray for that in a moment. But in our struggle against evil's influence, we don't want to be equally unprepared and vulnerable to our spiritual enemy because we're distracted with the wrong things. Our goal is to stay anchored in the theme of our series, life in the victory of Jesus. The decisive victory, the D-Day over evil has been won. And the devil is doing all his dirty work while he retreats. And Jesus' kingdom quietly but surely expands across the world. So how do we prepare for his attacks? One way is by watching Jesus face them. We'll be in Luke 4 today as we see Jesus head out into the wilderness for the last step in his training. And God also uses our temptations as testing and training ground for our struggle to love God and love others in a world that is ruled illegitimately by the enemy. So let's see what Jesus has to teach us as we face our own temptations. I invite you to pray with me as we enter in today. Lord Jesus, we can think of many ways that it seems like the devil is is winning and has the upper hand not least of which is this conflict in the Middle East, God. And Lord, there are so many things to sort out and so many ways that, um, that it's, it's almost impossible to know where, where, um, where you're at work there, Lord. But we know that violence and, and hurt and subterfuge and all these things are just part of the devil's work and we desperately long for your mercy to come in this place, in, in the Middle East this week, God, just as we have longed for it to come in, in other places around the world. Lord, we pray for your protection over the innocent. We pray for wisdom and restraint of those who, have, uh, who are pulling the strings of power. We pray, God, that you would somehow lead um, all that are involved to, to a peace that, um, that can last 
even though at this point, Lord, that looks like a miracle. And Lord, today, as we enter into your word, we pray that we would be taught, that we would be equipped to know the ways of the enemy, and even more to know your ways of of gaining victory over him, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, maybe you remember last week a quote from Jeremy Treat in his book, The Crucified King, which described the ways that Satan works. He says, the means by which Satan rules are one, temptation, two, deception, and three, accusation, all of which result in four, death. These are the works or schemes of the devil. And over the next three weeks, we'll walk through these ways that Satan uses his words to exert this illegitimate rule over us. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And the question we're asking Jesus to teach us is, how do we resist the devil's temptations? So you ready for a word study? I love word studies. The biblical word often translated temptation is the Greek word parasmos. Can you say that? Parasmos. The verb is parazo. Depending on the context, parasmos will be translated trial, proving, testing, examination, or temptation. So tires go through a parasmos to see how durable they are. Boot camp is a parasmos that stretches Marines recruit, marine recruits' ability to survive the rigors of war. A parasmos can be anything that stretches our patience, our endurance, our strength. It can be our fault or not. It can appear completely random or like a coordinated attack. It can be an opportunity or a threat. The experience of parasmos is just part of living in a broken world. So who's responsible for these tests, these trials, these temptations? Well, we do see places where parasmos come from God. Biblically, we see this where paras- this kind of parasmos where ill-equipped fighters are called by God to trust him as they fight a superior fighting force. We see Parasmos when Jesus asks the disciples to feed a big crowd of people with limited resources. It might be a nudge to go on a missions trip, a prompting to quit a good job with open hands for what's next, an opportunity to take on new responsibilities, a challenge to give in some sacrificial way. These Parasmos are are, are ways that God invites us to develop a, a deeper intimacy with him deeper trust in him. But it's also true, as 1 Peter 5, 8 says, that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Many parasmos come from the devil or perhaps are exploited by the devil. And what's the devil up to? He's trying to prove to God and then to us that we can't be trusted. He wants to show God that our motives are wrong, our moral will is weak, and our faith is insincere. And then he can accuse us of being unworthy of God's love and favor and trust. Now, Scripture informs us that Satan can't tempt or test us without the sovereign permission of God. 
Satan is restrained by the leash of God's wisdom. But wherever a test comes from, whether it's from God or from Satan, the question is, will you be found or will you become trustworthy or will your weakness be exposed? Satan's hope is to prove the latter. And we saw last week how Satan used temptation, deceit, and accusation to convince Adam and Eve to reject God's kingship. The result was a leadership vacuum. And Satan swept in with a hostile takeover. And now he repeats this cycle of temptation, deception, and accusation. That's how he asserts his illegitimate rule. And the result is destruction. We need rescue. In the New Testament, we see God's plan of rescue unfold in the life of Jesus. Jesus came to be what Adam and Eve and later Israel had not been. He had to pass the test where all others had failed. And so in Luke 4, we see Jesus facing three parasmos, three tests or temptations directed at him by his adversary, the devil. And these really are three of the devil's most common schemes. We'll see how Jesus passed each test. So I invite you to read along with me from Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted or tested by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, in chapter 3, when Jesus was baptized by John, the voice of his heavenly father affirmed his identity as son and Messiah in an unmistakable way. You'd expect the chariot to pull up and whisk him away to his palace. Give him all the luxuries of being the king. But instead, the spirit led him into a wilderness boot camp to be tested, tempted, put to the proof. Now, I think it's important to note here that what's going on. And the book of James tells us this about temptation. When tempted, no one should say, 
God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. See, God, God is never the author of evil. God is so pure of motive and intent and power that evil is never attractive to God. And God will never try to get someone to do evil. Jesus even encourages us to pray, lead us not into parasmos. Father, spare us from trials that test us. And yet, the trials come. Why is that? Well, James says, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their evil desire, their own evil desire, and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It's a vivid metaphor of a fatal seduction. But it tell us, tells us how Satan works. Satan asserts his rule by the power of suggestion. He doesn't force anyone to do anything. He appeals to the twisted and misguided and sick desires that are already inside of us. He deceives us into thinking that an intimate relationship with sin will be good for us. And then after we're hooked, he rejoices as we burn our lives to the ground. The reason the Son of God came was to destroy the devil's work. See, in, in his sovereign purpose of training Jesus for this mission, God allows the slanderer, the accuser, the destroyer, the thief, to bring his worst against Jesus. Can Satan get under Jesus' skin and twist his desires to Satan's purpose as he has with every other human in history? So let's look at the three temptations. The first one, verse two, Jesus ate nothing during those days and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. What's Satan's lure here? I wanna call it self-interest. This is a moment of physical and emotional vulnerability for Jesus. And Satan appeals to Jesus' most pressing need, his hunger. I mean, it seems reasonable. After all, he's been a good son. He's gone 40 days without food. He's got the power to do this. I mean, he should be able to have what he wants when he wants it. Why is this a problem? Well, we see the problem in Jesus' response to Satan. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And you'll see Jesus, each time he responds, he says, it is written or it is said. He doesn't sort of philosophize with Satan about the finer points of what he's entitled to. For Jesus, scripture is an authority that directs his life. It's his anchor. And here he's quoting the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, Moses calls Israel to turn from their sinful ways and renew their devotion to God as they are about to enter the promised land and fulfill their destiny. It's a great guiding text for Jesus as he trains for his own destiny as Israel's Messiah. And here, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. 
We're going to read it here in context. So Deuteronomy beginning, chapter 8, beginning in verse 3, says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. Why? To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines or trains his son, so the Lord your God disciplines or trains you. So as Jesus reflected on Deuteronomy, he discerned that Satan was trying to make self-interest more important than trusting God. The scripture reminded Jesus of the choice that all of us face in any parasmos. Will we allow our superficial desires to sidetrack us from the life that God is training us for? What happens when a parasmos leaves you feeling weak and hungry? Last spring was a very uh, stretching time for me. As a, as a pastor, as a leader, it was a number of different things that were on my plate, some, some challenging situations and relationships that we were navigating um, within the community, and, and I was just stretching myself in, in terms of some teaching and different things that I was doing, and I came to kind of the end of February, and I, had, I didn't remember being as tired as I had felt um, in that moment, and uh, I remember... I had an appointment with someone to, to do a kind of a, a spiritual counseling kind of connection. Um, it was a Zoom call or whatever. And, and I, had, I was like I was having this panic attack because I, I knew I didn't, I felt like I didn't have the resources to do this. And the thought that came to mind, this is a weird thought, was I understand why doctors and lawyers take cocaine. It's the weirdest thought. But it, it, I was like, I was at the bottom of my resources and I was, something in me was just like, I wonder if there's something that could just give me that shot. Now, I promise you, I didn't go looking even for cocaine. <laughs> but this is what the enemy does, is he reaches us in our vulnerable spots. I'm supposed to wake up every morning and say, Lord, you've given me this life, these resources. What do you want me to do with it? How do you want me to live? And the devil loves to just distract me from that question, especially when I'm empty or inadequate. He tempts me to think about what I need for myself. Be strong and courageous. Oh, hello. And in everything you do, do it by reflecting God. We needed that. That's good. Thank you. I can do this. I am strong. I am courageous. Okay. Thanks, guys. Satan tempts me to think about what I need for myself. And see, we live in a world where we do have the power to fulfill any appetite we have. And fixating on cuisine or fashion or sexual gratification, entertainment, even some kinds of self-care or finding me time can be a form of Turning, turning stones to bread. But when we use the power we have to serve ourselves first, we may miss the great things that God has in store for us. Jesus learned to be satisfied with the life that God arranged for him. 
He submitted to that discipline, to the restraint of God's purposes. And that made him someone God could trust. Temptation number two, verse five. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. What is this temptation? What's the lure? I want to say it's shortcuts. The Old Testament prophets had said that God would give worldwide authority to his Messiah. But they also spoke about how that authority would be given through his death for sinners. You can read it in Isaiah 53. But Satan offers all of that authority for a bargain price. Just sign here. Just bend your knee. No cross necessary. He's appealing to that human desire for power without sacrifice. It's a shortcut. Now, isn't devil worship kind of an obvious no? But the devil's way more subtle than that. A cross? Have you considered the usefulness of a bit of deception? Division? Manipulation? Fraud? Slander? Intimidation? It's worked pretty well before. I'm in charge here, says the devil, and these are the laws of the land. The devil's trying to convince Jesus as he's convinced every Caesar and president and cartel kingpin before and since. That his methods are the best and maybe even the only real way to do things. And again, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's read it in context. This is verse 13 through 15. Fear or worship the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you, for the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the earth. Jesus understands that he loses more than he gains by accepting the devil's way of doing things. The devil appears to have the power to destroy his enemies, but in the end, he and his work will be judged and destroyed by God. And if Jesus surrenders to the devil's way of doing things, he will be swept away by that same judgment. Where do we face this temptation? Well, the devil often comes to us in the parasmos of life when our goals are facing obstacles. And he whispers, you're not getting your way. How about a little manipulation? A little passive-aggressive? Intimidation? It's okay if you fudge the numbers. Tell a couple half-truths. Divide your enemies. Sow a little slander in the mix. You don't need to change. All you need to do is project a false image of yourself. No one will ever know. Fight for the top of the heap. Stay in control. The end justifies the means. Despair. You know what? There's no point in fighting this one. 
Just resign yourself to it. Surrender to those desires. You're never going to beat this one. I'm in charge here. But for all he appears to offer, Satan's only goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. And God is the true king and the final judge. The enemy's methods are not going to win out in the end. We only truly fulfill our destiny. We only receive what God has for us when we serve the true God and we submit to his slow, patient ways of love. And it took me a long time to learn this as a parent, right? When you have a little more power than your kids, you're paying the bills, you can raise your voice a little more, all these kinds of things. Man, it's easy to just use all that to get your way. The devil loves to sow that kind of stuff in a family because down the road, it causes division, it causes hurt, and all those things. And man, it's, it was a long journey for me to learn the slow, patient ways of love. Temptation number three. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift, up in their, lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. What's this final lure? Well, because of how Jesus responds to it, I would disagree with the commentators who think that Satan just wants to seek recognition by some spectacle, some supernatural trick that gets people's attention. Rather, I think this is the temptation of skepticism. By that I mean a demand for certainty as a condition of obedience. Let me explain. Satan knows that Jerusalem is going to be ground zero for their final battle. And so he takes Jesus there and proposes a test case. And he throws in a bit of promises from Psalm 91. Jesus, you seem really determined to face the cross. Can you be sure that God is going to take care of you? Wouldn't it be prudent to give God an opportunity to prove it to you before you do something reckless like going to the cross? I mean, who knows? You might need a contingency plan. And such a test case could have the appearance of radical trust in God, right? Jumping off a building. It would look like taking God at his word. But in fact, he is tempting Jesus to demand certainty of God before he obeys God's clear mission for him. Because listen to the scripture that Jesus counters with. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Once again, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And in context, the verse says, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Massa was the place in the desert in Exodus 17 where the Israelites ran out of supplies. And instead of trusting the God who'd already rescued them from tyranny, they grumbled and accused God of not taking care of them. See, a faithless, grumbling spirit wants to dictate the conditions under which we will obey God. It's skeptical. It refuses to move forward without certainty. 
And the opposite of testing God is found in Deuteronomy 6, 17, the verse right after, do not test him. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he's given you. By that, Moses means do it unconditionally. So in appealing to this verse, Jesus is saying, when I face the parasmos, I won't grumble or hedge my bets with God or demand certainty. I will trust his plan and do what he says. When do we face this temptation? Perhaps when we know the right thing to do, the devil loves to propose alternatives, half steps that still appear obedient. Yes, I know I'm supposed to go reconcile with that person, but there's, I'm going to do this ministry work and it'll look very holy, right? The devil loves to suggest that I don't need to obey some very clear command until God gives me a miraculous sign that kicks my butt to do it. It could look like counting on God's grace to overlook the sin I've decided to commit and give me a pass on its consequences, right? Romans 6, 1, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Shall we jump off a building so God can catch us? Or it could just look like living recklessly and scattering my energies every which way instead of taking the time to discern what he wants me to do and then doing it. Well, why is this a problem? Well, when one partner is constantly testing the other to say, do you love me yet? Prove you love me. It actually undermines intimacy in a relationship, right? Makes it difficult. And someone who's known for recklessly testing the limits is hardly trustworthy for good work. By trying to introduce this element of doubt Is God going to catch you? Into Jesus' relationship with his father, Satan hopes to make Jesus untrustworthy, to unhinge him from reality and make him volatile and unpredictable. And that's Satan's aim with us as well. We must adopt Jesus' posture. I'm not going to force proof upon God. I will trust him and I'll obey. So let me summarize. Life is full of parasmos, obstacles to our goals. With our limited view and our limited powers, parasmos makes us impatient and anxious. And that's where the devil comes in. He loves to provoke our imagination, stirring up all our worries of the worst case scenarios and our fantasies of a life without suffering. It's the temptation to choose self-interest. He loves to intimidate, to convince us that only his methods will work. The temptation to adopt shortcuts. And he loves to undermine our trust in God, even using scripture to do it. The temptation to hedge our bets with skepticism. And it should be noted that all of these things can be hidden, disguised as very religious behavior. And compounded across history, these temptations have ruined us and ruined the world that God has made. But should we be afraid? We don't need to be afraid, but we should be vigilant. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, Paul writes these words. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation, no testing has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted or tested beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted or tested, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. The city of Corinth was a hotbed of immorality and idolatry and inequality. And it would be easy to say, come on, Paul. Come on, Jesus. You don't know the immense pressure we live under. The way of the cross is unreasonable when everyone around us is living for themselves. And many Christians have fallen into that attitude. It's so tempting. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul reminds the church that like the Israelites, they have all the benefits and resources of a relationship with God. But they, under this pressure, this parasmos, are at the risk of falling into sin and undermining their destiny. And so he says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. That phrase was just resonating in my head as I woke up in the middle of the night even. So easy to think, I'm good, standing firm. And Satan is so subtle. Be careful that you don't fall. Notice that temptation itself is not sin, it's just present, right? The testing of our character is something everyone faces. It's common to mankind. And that means we don't get special permission to compromise just because of the time and place that we happen to live in. These temptations have always been around. So how do we survive? When we face a test of our character, we don't survive only by trying harder. Rather, Paul says we anchor ourselves in God's character, his faithfulness, his sovereign restraint of the devil's power, his provision for our escape. And most of all, we anchor ourselves in what God has shown himself, has shown about himself in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted, tested, in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. He let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus faced parasmos in the wilderness, but he also faced these incredible demands of ministry, the scorn of his fellow Israelites, the resistance of the religious leaders, the betrayal of his friends, the agony of the garden, the scourges of the soldiers, the torture and spiritual forsakenness of the cross and death. And in every parasmos, he could have broken, but he didn't. And that means he knows how powerful temptation can get. He faced it to the uttermost and endured. So, of course, he can give us counsel on how to endure ourselves. So, what were the resources that Jesus drew on as he faced down the devil? First of all, you'll notice in verse 1, it says that Jesus was filled with the Spirit. 
He did not tackle this test alone. And I know I need to think more about swinging my legs over the edge of the bed and saying, Lord, fill me with your spirit. And heading out the door saying, Lord, fill me with your spirit. And walking into work saying, Lord, fill me with your spirit. I need you to live in me and through me or I'm not going to win. So Jesus was filled by the spirit. Second of all, scripture. God's voice, especially God's word, formed Jesus' self-understanding. God's word was hidden in his heart. It was on the tip of his tongue like a sharpened sword ready for battle. Jesus knew who God said he was and what his destiny was, and he worked from the clarity of that. The world under Satan's influence wants to tell us who we are and why we're here and what we deserve, but these messages are not in our best interest. So let me ask you, what are you filling your mind with? What are you meditating on? What's entertaining you? What's occupying you? Is it making you ready for battle? Or will you be unprepared? Third, prayer. Jesus learned and taught his disciples the importance of staying alert in prayer. When the pressure was high and suffering imminent, Jesus commanded his disciples, keep alert and pray so that you will not fall into temptation for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's Mark 14, 38. What does that look like? Well, instead of letting the devil exploit our worry and discontent and lead us into sin. In Philippians 4, Paul tells us to make a habit of taking those anxieties to God, submitting our desires to his will with a a posture of gratitude. And this is what he says the result is. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You want to guard against the enemy? Bring your requests to God and receive the peace that he gives. And don't forget that Jesus is saying, y'all watch and pray. It's a collective instruction. It's something we do in community, in vulnerability. Keep alert and pray together. Talk about the ways you're vulnerable so that you can support and help each other and receive peace as your guard against the enemy. That's why we have prayer ministry. It's why we encourage you to be in an apprentice group or a life group. And finally, worship. Notice that God's pleasure was Jesus' delight. We might have many guards and strategies in place to keep us from sin, right? The accountability group, the accountability software, the reminders on our mirror, you know, all those kinds of things. But if all we're trying to do is not break a rule we secretly wish we could break, we give the devil an ear. Every time the devil tried to pull Jesus' focus to what he lacked, Jesus asked himself, is this going to help me draw closer to my father or steal and kill and destroy the intimacy that I treasure? That is such a powerful question. Is this going to draw me closer to the lover of my soul, to my heavenly father, or will it steal, kill, and destroy the intimacy that I treasure? 
So how do we learn to make God our delight? Remember what Jesus said, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We've already heard James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, James 4, 8 says, come near to God and he will come near to you. That's our invitation. To resist temptation, draw near to God and worship him. Practically, that means asking God to make himself known to us. And then using all the resources at our disposal, whether it's scripture or Christian books or, or podcasts or whatever it is that, that informs you more about who God is, to learn what's true about him and what he's done. And then we keep bringing those things to mind, rejoicing in them, expressing our praises to God and just doing our best to understand and savor the goodness, not only of God, but of God's commands. When we fill our minds and our ears with, what the, with the wonder of who God is, then what Satan offers to us is exposed as a counterfeit, a shabby substitute. He says, you want this? And we look at it and we go, no, I want God. I want life, the life that he offers me. That is what protects us from the tests and the temptations of the devil. And that's what ultimately makes us trustworthy partners with God in his work. So as I close, I just want to invite you to stand. I don't know what parasmos you're facing. Maybe it's a difficult relationship, loneliness, an unreasonable demand, illness, financial difficulties. Where can you see the places where Satan's lies have taken hold? Where is self-interest or shortcuts that adopt the devil's methods or skepticism undermining what God wants to do in your life? Friends, we have intimate access to a Savior who has been tempted, who's been tested in every way without ever succumbing to sin. And from his infinite resources, he's eager and willing to give us mercy when we fail and grace to help us whenever we face temptation. If you'd like someone to come beside you in prayer ministry, we have folks here at the, at the front or in the prayer room today. Whatever your parasmos might be, we'd love to come alongside of you. I invite you just to open your hands as we pray now. Lord, some of us are facing serious tests of our faith. Please help us to see you standing beside us as our gracious helper today. Some of us are very close to giving up and giving in to the temptations of self-interest and shortcuts and skepticism and so many other things. Strengthen us again. Refresh our vision of who you are and of the good life that you invite us to find in you. And some of us have fallen and failed again and again. And the devil's accusations are ringing in our ears. Thank you, Jesus, that you know just how hard temptation can be 
Lord, in your mercy, forgive our sin and restore us. Thank you that you did obey, enduring the cross so that our sins could be forgiven and wiped away and every day can be a new day with you. We draw near to you in faith that you draw near to us. Show us your glory, your love, your wisdom, that we may treasure you above all other things. And Lord, crush Satan beneath our feet. <laughs>